0: father's lightsaber. What's lightsabers,
1: precious? Hello, and welcome to What's Lightsabers, Precious, a Lord of the Rings and Star Wars podcast where we waste time on fictional wikis. I'm Joanna. And I'm also Joanna? Wait a minute. Aren't there supposed to be two people here? <laughs> That's probably what you're thinking, right? Well, joke's on you because Ryan is in Florida this week doing absolutely nothing apropos of Star Wars whatsoever. It's a bummer, but at least without Ryan here, I can eat chips while recording. Mmm. Mmm. Delicious, crunchy chips. Mmm. Anywho, I have a special guest here today. Her name is Teresa, and she's the friend with whom I went to all the Lord of the Rings sites in New Zealand, as well as, a couple weekends ago, the Morgan Museum in New York to see the special J.R.R. Tolkien exhibit. So, without further ado, let's talk about it. Okay, so before we start, uh, I want to introduce you. So, your name is Teresa, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. (laughs) All right, Teresa, how do we know each other?
0: Well, we met in middle school. Like, we both went to Malby Middle School, the better middle school at the time. The better of the, the two. The obviously superior one in Not the, that bougie
1: rich bitch Scranton.
0: I know. Screw that place. Um, and then we, I don't think we were really friends in middle school. We didn't hang out in the same group of people but then we became friends when I started like randomly emailing you because you seemed like you were a nice person while I was at a different high school in ninth grade and then I came back to Brighton High so then we were at the same high school and we were in band together and that's where I would say the majority of our adventures happened and this was around the time that the Lord of the Rings movies were coming out so I think actually like I don't know. I have the worst memory ever, but the, the genesis of our friendship was like largely Hobbit themed. If I recall I would correctly, say. yeah. And we had live journals at that time. I think.
1: Oh my so god! We were you're writing right. about it on Live Journal. Yes, yes, and you had like a super custom like Lord of the Rings Live Journal theme that involved merging global heads, and I was like I mad did. jealous. I but did. But also was, like, I was like, I was like a
0: CSS it. champion, and I learned it all because I was like, my Lord of the Rings Live Journal has to be customized. Like, none of this packaged garbage. I'm not just putting, like, one picture on there. It is gonna be, like, top down. I learned Paint Shop Pro specifically to, like, make wow. icons and headers for my Lord of the Rings-themed live journal, so.
1: Well, it was easily, like, one of the top five dopest Lord of the Rings-themed live <laughs> journals I have ever seen. It was really good.
0: And I was on a forum like a long time ago i was on a forum called DestroyTheRing.net. ring.net
1: i and- was on that too
0: and i told so many lies about myself on that forum but mostly it was like <laughs> lord of the rings themed discussions but for some reason i invented like this alternate personality for myself and i or like this <laughs> alternate history and like i didn't give my real name and like I just remember making all sorts of stuff up, but then being afraid I was going to get caught in a lie, and then I eventually just, like, left the forum. So it's a very embarrassing story from my past, and it's the reason I don't trust anything I read on the internet today.
1: See, now that part I don't remember. I remember people on that forum being extremely dramatic, and some chick whose name was Aragorn's Ring, like, arguing that she was basically Aragorn because she was in Scouts, and she had achieved the rank of Ranger in Scouts.
0: Wow, I don't remember her. I do remember that my... (laughs) Nay, I was, so I was on the forum a lot, and my name was just Ringinus Air, which was, like, the Norwegian translation of The Lord of the Rings, that's, like, the title of it. Yeah! I think on the, on the forum, I think I was claiming I was Norwegian, which I am not. I have Norwegian heritage, but I'm just American.
1: Norwegian-American! I mean, technically.
0: Yeah. So, I don't know if you have any listeners who were on DTR back in the day, but my life was a lie, and if you believed it, I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) We're gonna get, like, so many angry emails. Be like, this bitch told me that she was <laughs> Norwegian. I believed her.
0: I actually got, like, so i kind of forgotten about that. And then when I was in my 20s, I went and looked for, like, dtr.net to, like, scrub the history. And it was gone. So, like, I Thank God. that site is, like, gone Thank long. God.
1: Because I'm almost positive, like, I didn't contribute anything that I would be proud of to that either.
2: Morgan. Okay in collaboration with the Bodleian Libraries, University of Oxford, and the Tolkien Trust, presents Tolkien, Maker of Middle Earth, on view from January 25th to May 12th, 2019. This exhibition celebrates the creative genius of one of the most renowned and admired authors of the 20th century. The Morgan Exhibition is your only opportunity in America to see the largest collection ever assembled of J.R.R. Tolkien's original drawings, manuscripts, and maps. So...
1: Anyway, so this Morgan Museum exhibit, this Tolkien exhibit, so how did you first hear about it?
0: Google knows me really well, and when I pull up Google on my phone, it has, like, here's stuff we think you'd be interested in. There's new scented candles that have been released. Also, Tolkien stuff. So, like, every time someone writes an article about Tolkien, it alerts me. That and, like, I don't know, what else does it tell me? A whole bunch of other dumb stuff. But um, it. Google,
1: I mean, placenta shampoo. Yeah, placenta
0: shampoo. There's that. And then um, <laughs> we do not have time to unpack that right now. So that'll just be a mystery no, for we your listeners. Don't.
1: Let's just move <laughs> um,
0: on. <laughs> so, like, the downside is that every time someone writes an article about some theory about the Amazon Lord of the Rings TV show, it Google tells me, and it's always the same stuff. Like, it might be in New Zealand. It might be this.
1: Which is so obnoxious because it's like literally all the story is is like some self-described reporter, anyway, will ask somebody vaguely connected to the show, hey, could this, this, and this happen? And the person will be like, well, I can't say it's 100% impossible because we live in a universe of infinite (laughs) possibilities. And then they'll be like, oh my god, this is definitely going to happen.
0: So that was how I learned about the exhibit at the Morgan Library. So this time Google did me well. And they recommended to me something I was super interested in. And I saw that it was running... It's running from January to May. So it's still there. And I was like, hey, we should definitely do this. this. Seems like the kind of thing that we would do. And then I picked a weekend based on the fact that there was like a Tolkien symposium going on that weekend, not thinking that it would
1: be- Which we weren't <laughs> able to get into. Yeah,
0: not thinking <laughs> that it would be already sold out, which it like definitely was by the time I'd even heard of it.
1: Right. So not thinking that it'd be sold out and also not remembering that it was going to yes, be St. Patrick's that was Day. So we were my like, <laughs> chest deep in super dr- No, it's totally fine because I didn't remember either. But we were like- Tit deep in like all these drunk college students from every hellhole city on earth, and it was a lot. It was a lot. It It was was a lot. lot. But the exhibit was and
0: yeah, it definitely was. And we we were close to the parade, which I didn't realize is like six and a half hours (laughs) long.
1: And how do you even have that many fire trucks and tractors? I know. I don't even to make a six hour long parade. I don't even
0: understand. So yeah, it was all worth it, and I'm excited to talk
1: about it. Let's dive right into the exhibit itself then. So, tickets were, like, about 20 to $25. You took an elevator up to the second floor, and the first thing you're met with is, like, what looks like the entry to a hobbit hole and a man telling you that under no circumstances may you take photos, but, like... He's the only one up there, and he can't watch every part of the exhibit, so, like, everybody was taking photos. (laughs) Like, he couldn't police it at all. I definitely took photos. I think everybody did. I didn't.
0: I didn't. Uh I'm one of those, like, squares who's like, oh, they told me not to take photos, so I'm not going to take photos.
1: I took one... Okay, so one of the photos I took was... So they had doodles that Tolkien had drawn over top of newspapers that he was reading, and there was one sort of abstract paisleyish type doodle, but the headline directly above it said something to the effect of, boy, age seven, sat on baby yes. sister.
0: <laughs> I do recall it's seeing like, that. Like, And thinking, like, wow, Tolkien just brushed right past the real story right there. He had other stuff on his mind.
1: (laughs) He's, like, infant crushed to death. I could not give less of a shit. Here's some paisley.
2: Tolkien spent his childhood in the countryside near Birmingham, England, where he developed a great love of the natural world. At a very early age, his mother instilled in him a love of language and literature that would have immense impact on his future. Even before he was out of school, he was already creating a fictitious language that would eventually develop into Elvish.
1: Anyway, so the exhibit goes like roughly chronologically. So it talks about Tolkien uh, being born and originally raised in South Africa. They have a photo of him and his family. There's a caption that says, atypical for the time, the servants were also in the photograph. (laughs) That's nice. They let them be in the photograph like they were, you know, human beings, I guess. I don't want to give them, like, you know, too much, too much credit for letting them be in the photo, but it was atypical for the time, so. Yeah,
0: it just says atypical. Um, I mean. (laughs) Yeah.
1: It is atypical. It is atypical. They're not saying, like, you know, like, somebody give this family an award, they let black people be in their photos. They're just
0: just noting it. Like, atypical. They're just noting it.
1: And then they had photos of J.R.R. Tolkien and his brother as babies. And I like how they had to, like, explain to you that although the Outfits look very feminine. They were typical for the time. Yeah,
0: and I feel like that. I thought that was kind of common knowledge. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm goofed up here. But like the fact that I boys used to wear. I kind of thought so. it's just because okay. I'm Catholic, and like all little kids when they get baptized wear those dresses, and so it's like relatively common knowledge that at least when I was growing up, that like both. When, when kids are babies, both boys and girls wore like long dresses in the past. I don't
1: know. I thought so too. I was kind of like I guess that's not common knowledge because they needed to note it because I guess somebody'd be like, "Why well, are they dressed like girls? Yeah, this is perverted. I'm leaving. can't,
0: can't have that. As we know, Tolkien <laughs> famously perverted
1: famous famous pervert, famous salacious libertine yes. J.r.R. Tolkien. Um I don't know if I ever learned this, but um when Tolkien was 12, his mom died of diabetes. I, knew I don't that know if his... I knew that and forgot it, or I
0: knew that his mom had passed away when he was young. I did not remember that it was of diabetes.
1: Yeah, that really sucks. Like it—it it sucks to remember that until extremely recently. If you had diabetes, it was just like kind of a matter of time. Yeah,
0: it. Yeah, absolutely. I do recall that his mom's handwriting—it looks a lot like what we've come to know as the Hobbit font, and like yes, what, and like what Tolkien kind of wrote out with, with like concerning hobbits and stuff like that, like with the dots and stuff. Like that seems to be kind of based on her handwriting, which I didn't know, didn't realize, and thought was really, really interesting.
1: Yeah, that was extremely cool. They had, like, a letter that she had written to a friend, and it was, like, this extremely ornate yeah. handwriting that was... Beautiful, And it did say that he was, like, largely taught by his mom as a kid. So I guess, like, the influence would be pretty strong. I guess that's natural. But yeah, that was, yeah, very cool. I'll try to post a picture, if I can, on, like, the Facebook group of his mom's handwriting. It stretches, if you're not used to it, it kind of stretches the bounds of legibility. But it is extremely beautiful.
0: Well, and J.R.R. Tolkien would later put his mom to shame in terms of illegibility because...
1: Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, having seen his letters now, because when I was covering, um, the history of middle earth like uh, christopher tolkien's notes on his dad's development of lord of the rings i made fun of how much he bitches about his dad's handwriting but like now having seen it i'm like holy shit oh yeah like, he's,
0: <laughs> he's completely justified and he should be considered a hero and potentially knighted in the, in england for having deciphered all of his father's handwriting because like i mean the the reading speed must have been so slow like it took me a good 10 minutes just to get through a single page of Tolkien's writing and that was like yeah. not getting every word.
1: The only other thing I wrote down pre-World War I is that when he was studying this was when he first met the woman who would become his wife um Edith to whom he was extremely dedicated and who he had an extremely happy marriage with I'm glad to report but there was some note about how he was still a student but she was out of school if she'd even gone to school i can't recall and as a reward for oh. studying she would give him kisses and they had like a ledger of like kisses owed and i was like that is so gross i
0: know i do actually <laughs> recall that i did not write that down um
1: i wrote down barf but yeah and that immediately triggered what i was saying barf about it was that yeah
0: that is uh that is pretty cheesy and like typical teenager stuff i guess Still.
1: I mean like it's great, they loved each other, that's fun, but Jesus, you have to record that stuff. I know all couples do cheesy shit, but come on, that's like that's a bit beyond the pale. Can, can,
0: like although like the Tolkien estate maybe could have chose to just like keep that private, like what if you had I mean, something like true. what if you had something like that in your past? And then after you died, someone put it in a museum.
1: Can you imagine? Do you think they had to ask, like, Christopher Tolkien's permission to include it? Like, hey, can we include this list of how many times your parents made out?
0: Yeah, and he he apparently gave the thumbs up.
1: He was like, yes, that is critical information for people to have. People need to know that my dad was, like, getting some. Yeah,
0: I don't blame Tolkien so much for doing it as other decision makers for making it public
1: around that same time there was like this old stately british gentleman who was like walking around behind me and he was telling his date much younger date um something about the science of attraction i didn't catch the whole topic but right as he walked behind me he crooned into her ear they call me dr love ew <laughs> it was really So it was just like a one two punch of grossness. Disgusting. Ew I was like, can you not, sir? There was also that guy that was
0: talking about watership down a lot. And I was like, Look, no shade to watership (laughs) down, but like we're all here for a purpose, right? Like why are you talking about Watership Down?
1: Yes. So when you say that he was talking about Watership Down, what he was doing was he was standing in the center of the room, and anybody who walked by, he asked them if they knew who wrote Watership Down. Yeah.
0: And and at <laughs> one point, a 14-year-old boy was not, was kind enough to answer. He looked about 14. I didn't ask him. But like a, a young teenager was kind enough to answer him, and boy, did he pay for his kindness, because that man talked his ear off about Watership Down and talking animals and works comparable to Watership Down for a hot minute.
1: Dude, go to the Watership Down exhibit. What the hell are you doing? I know, I know. If it's, if, if, don't troll the Tolkien, whatever, whatever. I mean, I'm sure there's some overlap between people who read Tolkien and people who read Watership Down, but um, sir, that's not what we're here for. No,
0: exactly. I was like, stay on topic, stay focused. We're here to talk about And you were sitting there on Hobbits.
1: the bench- listening to him for like a good while i know
0: i was trying to just enjoy myself You're and soak up the atmosphere up. and he just kept talking about Watership down and then you came over and i was like okay i think we're ready to go so like we're kind of skipping <laughs> okay, ahead to
2: the end of the exhibit here
0: so <laughs> yes. maybe let's circle back
2: and talk about World <laughs> okay. War. okay while he was in college and even in the trenches of world war one was starting to write down the stories that would eventually become his legendarium the history of the elms Drawings depicting a cloaked and hooded figure walking in a shadowy forest or landscapes of distant, solitary mountains that he produced in his teenage years were so embedded in his imagination.
1: Alright, so World War One. what I learned was that he was not killed in the war because he had trench fever. Yeah. So he was, like, out of commission. I don't know what trench fever is, do you? No. Is it special, or is it literally just, like, he caught a bad virus or something because, like, he was in these muddy, cold trenches all the time. I have a
0: feeling it's something like that. I know that trench foot is, like, a specific condition, or at least I think it is. Trench fever, I think, is just, yeah, some kind of horrible disease. I don't think it's a special designation. And this was,
1: like, this was back in the day where you would get, like, the common cold and it'd be like, I was on bed rest for a year and a half. Like, so it was just... This put him, like, well out of commission. And that's why, um, basically... He didn't die, but basically any friend that he had had prior to World War I died, except for, like, one guy, if I recall correctly. There was one other guy who made it out, but otherwise, like, literally all of his friends died. Yeah,
0: I think, um, and I guess we'll all find out more details about this when the movie comes out soon, but um, I think there was, I've been reading his the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, and there was kind of a, a group. Of fellow boys that he had started a little bit of a club with, like a literature, poetry, arts focused club. And they continued, I mean, they all ended up in the war because they were about that age, and they continued to write each other back and forth. And one of the first letters you read in the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien is a response Tolkien wrote after having read a letter from one of the boys telling him that, you know, another one of their friends had passed. Or had been killed. God. So it starts off on a pretty dark note, but that's, like, that. it's actually interesting because that's, like, maybe the third letter or something. And these were some of the people who heard the original Arendelle, which was written and, and he read aloud to this
1: group before the
0: war, if I recall correctly.
1: That is really, really, really stinking sad. It is really
0: sad. And it's, it's funny because... As you know, my mom has has famously said that World War One is her favorite war. That's the way my mom. Her favorite. <laughs> that's the way my mom has phrased wars. it.
1: The only people that favorite wars are like nine year old boys and your mom. Uh,
0: yeah, and my mom. And of course, I think we both know that she means like from a historical perspective and stuff like that. But I think it, World War One gets a little lost, like in in European and American culture, under like the specter of World War Two. But it was certainly absolutely. I think, in some ways, at the time, an even more impactful conflict. Than World War Two was like in terms of the deaths of young men in that age range and like how much it changed the the global economy and you know it obviously gave way to World War Two so like I don't know just right. a just a side note from me that World War One was really bad and we don't have as good of pictures from it but you should still appreciate people need the to
1: recognize hey all you people out there who are like hey World War One wasn't so bad all those numerous people who are who are just like spreading that that line. It's it was bad. Yeah,
0: it was really Please bad. He's
1: recognized that it was bad. After they kind of go through his young life, this is where you get the doodles that on the newspaper yep. that were attributed they were attributed to Númenórean ceramic styles. I love the fact that like he couldn't just doodle, it had to fit into his world somehow. Yeah.
0: I mean, it, yeah, it was really interesting. Like you see a lot of you see a lot of little common scribbles that like even later when you look at a lot of his later paintings and 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 work and things that he drew for the books. A lot of that stuff has its genesis or like some kind of common design in a lot of the
1: early stuff that he was putting together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's really cool, because he was doing that from, you know, like, well before he actually wrote The Hobbit, yeah. because he was working on stuff that would later be included in the Silmarillion from well before he was working yeah. on The Hobbit, so it's kind of cool. Speaking of The Hobbit, that's kind of the next section you come to. Yeah,
0: yeah, it is. So, so both from the exhibit and from the letters of J.R.R. R. Tolkien, you know, some of the... The initial genesis of like getting it published was that it it was read by he wrote it just for fun like it didn't really fit quote unquote into his world at first he kind of had to do a little retconning to make that happen yeah then he I think just started showing it around to folks and eventually someone's son read it and thought it was really good and decided and he decided it should go for publication and I know Alan and Unwin were the original publishers and he has quite a few letters that he writes to George when yes throughout this period yes yeah
1: it was like pretty it's weird it was like pretty much like a smash hit from the beginning yeah it was the hobbit the amount what i mostly wrote down was like the amount of work that he would put into things for example like how far a hobbit would be able to walk in one day, or like, this species would be able to walk in one day because he wanted to make sure that he wasn't having them travel distances that were, like, unrealistic. Yeah! Even though you're, like, you're you're in a world where it's got, like, it's got trolls, it's got, like, giant eagles, it's got wargs, it's got wizards, but, like, keep it realistic, please. So, but I think that's, like, part of what makes Tolkien's work so enjoyable is, like, the level of realism that he brings to such a fantastical world.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and, like, I recall him, there's even, I have written in my notes that he had calendar where he went back after having written a bunch of stuff and been like okay these characters were doing this on this day so that lines up with this and this lines up with that you know and you see that i remember like when the lord of the rings films were coming out a whole the whole shiloh section is is in the two towers in the books and it gets migrated to return of the king which was like a discussion at the time. Like, it was a little bit of... It caused a little bit of discourse at the time because it was a pretty major structural change. But... Right. There's both um, plot reasons for doing that, you know, because you have this climax of Helm's Deep going on in the films. But also, it's accurate to the timeline because Tolkien had plotted this timeline out so exactly and, like, lined up, like, okay, as Frodo and Sam are going up the stairs of Cirith Ungol, they are seeing the armies that are going to Minas Tirith. So in the books... That's very
1: interesting. Yeah, so in the
0: books, they are you actually do jump a little bit back and forth in time. And then in the films, they actually line that up so that it's all happening simultaneously, which makes sense for the
1: That medium. is very interesting. I remember thinking it made sense for the medium. I don't remember diving into the timeline at the time to, like, check whether or not it lined up or not, but that's interesting to hear that it did.
0: Oh, I, I wouldn't say I dove in. I would say that this was, like, in the DVD extras, and I recall that
1: fact. <laughs> well, you dove into DVD extras. Yeah. Not everybody has that level of dedication. I, I certainly not everybody do. Not everybody has watched the cast commentary, like, seven or eight times. And I have, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: That's a good commentary.
1: <laughs> the cat by the way, guys, like the cast commentary, if you've never watched it on Lord of the Rings, is like extremely entertaining. It is. I mean, as I recall. I haven't watched it since I was a literal child, but I recall it being very entertaining, so it's
0: extremely entertaining and then at some point it gets less entertaining. And I remember at the time we had a theory that like someone had actually come in between films or between sections and been like, guys, you have to talk about the film. You can't talk about the Matrix. You can't talk yeah, about Yeah, like the- rein it
1: in, please. Yeah, exactly. Like, you can't like make all these marijuana jokes yeah. or like Talk about how when you were seven, you really liked eggs.
0: At least they didn't talk about Watership Down, though. That would have
2: been a bridge. They <laughs>
1: didn't. <work. laughs> they didn't. That would have been no. They would have just torpedoed the whole thing. Yeah. They'd be like, next movie, no cast commentary. We're not doing this again. So that's yeah, that's what I had about the Hobbit. Oh no, wait, I have one more thing. Gandalf. Well, Thorin was originally called Gandalf. Yeah. And Gandalf was originally called thin <laughs> Which is like a very unfortunate I had name. That. Yeah, Bladderthin. Yeah, B-L-A-D-O-R-T-H-I-N. Oh my goodness. It's not, it doesn't have as much of a a ring to it. It also sounds like you have maybe some wear on the lining of your bladder and it's gotten thin and it's like, you know, in danger of rupturing maybe. It just, it doesn't, it's, yeah. Yeah. I don't know he probably it probably meant something in some language that he was studying and he picked it for those reasons but oh
0: yeah that's almost certainly the case but yeah he rightly recognized that there's very little gravitas to that name and that um, the yes. character deserved a little more in the Hobbit it's not called the Shire that happens later. no
1: never yeah it's never called the Shire in the Hobbit it's called the Shire once they get to Lord of the Rings yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's weird, like, the things they don't mention in The Hobbit, and one of them being the Shire. Another one being, like, what is exactly, like, the difference between a goblin and an orc that gets, like, I feel like kind of muddy because they never say orc in The Hobbit, like, even once. So, also, there's, like, sandworms in The Hobbit, which they put in the Peter Jackson movie, and I feel like it's kind of like the Tiffany problem that you explained to me when we were in New York because it's like they're in the book but if you were to tell people there are sandworms in the book I feel like there's a pretty good chance they would not believe you
0: well I remember when I saw the unexpected journey which I didn't think was too bad like you know the Hobbit films are are obviously like not quite to the caliber that the Lord of the Rings right. are. Right. But I remember thinking the first one, I was like, okay, like, this is fine. Like, I'm enjoying it. But people were complaining afterwards about the stone giants because it seemed too goofy. And I'm like, no, that's, like, straight from the book. Like
1: It's in the book, yeah. guys. I, we tend to forget, I think, that The Hobbit was, like, written for children. Yeah. Like, and so, yeah, there is some stuff in there that's, like, goofy enough that it probably would not work in Lord of the Rings. But in the context of The Hobbit, it works. But in the context of the movies, where they tonally they had some struggles. Yes. I think we can say. Um, sometimes Sometimes they fit and sometimes they don't yeah. but the sandworms also made the cut and that was very much like a what the hell and then you're like oh wait yeah they did mention that yeah. but yeah so that was the hobbit and then they move on to lord of the rings right yeah. so the exhibit goes like roughly chronologically in terms of when things were published right so it goes like hobbit lord of the rings and then silmarillion what did you have for lord of the rings
0: So, um, I have a few things for Lord of the Rings. So the first was noting, so like I said, I I was fresh off of reading the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien. So, like, I was matching together a lot of the things that I had read and gained insight from while I was reading that with, like, things I was seeing in the exhibit. And I remember being really struck by, like, all of the detail that was put into, as we said before, the calendar, the mapping, like, he actually... I think, made Christopher Tolkien, like, help him, like, plot out a map that was yes! that was accurate. And when I was reading the letters of Tolkien, he would write his publisher and be like, I'm still working on that Hobbit sequel. This fellow Faramir has shown up, and I don't really know what he's doing here, but I quite <laughs> like him. So, like, there's this incredible contrast between the amount of planning he he took to make the logistics of the story cohesive, and the absolute lack of foresight he had as to where the story was going like
1: right right he like fleshed out the world but then in terms of the plot he's just like oh we'll see where it goes
0: yeah you know i think it's just an an interesting commentary on on his creative process to to dive in a little bit to like he he wrote the hobbit willy-nilly eventually kind of fit it into this broader world he had been creating since he was a teenager and then with the hobbit or excuse me with the lord of the rings he was asked for a sequel to the hobbit and I would say like he succeeded in the fact that he created my favorite book and one of the greatest books of the 20th century, but like failed in really delivering.
2: What was to be a sequel, another of Bilbo's adventures, quickly developed and became The Lord of the Rings. Manuscript drafts and maps in Tolkien's own hand show how the characters and the narrative developed, while his illustrations, which were never really intended for publication, show his own visual concepts of the Gates of Moria, Sauron's fortress of Barad-dûr, and Galadriel's realm, the Forest of Lothlorians.
1: It's not really a sequel to The Hobbit. I mean, like, I guess, uh nah. I mean, it really, like, rather than being a sequel to The Hobbit, it sort of retroactively makes The Hobbit a prologue to The Lord of the Rings, which is fine, too, but yeah, it's amazing, like, how much, by his own admission, it just got, like, completely out of hand.
0: Yeah, he even uses that phrase in the letters, I think, he's like, things are getting quite
1: out of hand, and And I'm trying to get it under control. He Um, he, He did not succeed in that. No.
0: And, um, and it's amazing when you, like, you read through all the letters and you look through all the work he was putting into it, and then you kind of look at the length of The Lord of the Rings, and it's not terribly long compared to, like, what gets, you know, kind of, like, churned out today, which I think is interesting.
1: That's true. Fantasy novels today are hella long. Yeah. They're, like, regularly 600, 700 pages long. Compared to that, Lord of the Rings is... Not I wouldn't say like a like a walk in the park. It's not a breezy read, It never will be. But it's it's nowhere near the length of like you know something like a Song of Ice and Fire, yeah. so or even
0: like Brandon Sanderson,
1: or even Brandon Sanderson exactly. Like, like,
0: he, he turns out like twelve hundred pages on the reg, and that's so that, right. that's like one book of a ten book series.
1: Oh, um, I found it interesting that so I feel like he kind of retconned this later, but originally when he was creating the map, he would sort of like talk about the relative locations of places in Middle-Earth in terms of relative locations of real places in England. So yeah. he'd be like, Hobbiton is Oxford, Minas Tirith is Ravenna. I know at one point he mentioned that Frido and Sam go to Greenland in an early draft. Yeah. So it's like, to <laughs> what extent was he actually mapping this in his head onto a map of our present-day Earth? I feel like it changed over time.
0: Yeah, I don't think there was an like a completely consistent methodology throughout the entire creation process, but yeah, I like the idea of Frodo and Sam going to Greenland because it's pretty incongruous, and I find those kind of situations funny.
1: It was amazing. Yeah. Like, I, I love the fact that Greenland was, like, I guess a stand-in for Valinor, maybe? Although he knew Valinor existed because he wrote all that Silmarillion stuff prior to The Hobbit. So I guess he's like, yeah, Valinor exists, but they're going to go to Greenland instead. I don't
0: know. <laughs> well, we'll, and we'll touch on this a little more in the Silmarillion part, but the, the framework for the, the Silmarillion originally, when it had a completely different name, was that like it was in our Earth, and there was a Traveler, from England who's, like, landed That's on the right. shores of Tol Arisaia and You
1: were telling me that. Yeah,
0: and we actually saw, so, like, that is, so originally the entire Silmarillion, and we're jumping a little bit ahead here, which I hope is okay. Um, That's
1: totally fine.
0: Is, is called The Cottage of Lost Play, which is a very un-Tolkien Title. It like it doesn't. It, it does not ring accurate or authentic at all. a Little bit of a. It sounds like problem. a dark
1: children's. It sounds like a children's dark fairy tale yeah. or something like that.
0: And in it, a traveler named Ariel, and later he gets another name from England, travels west and lands on Tol Eressia, where the gnomes and or what. It used to be called gnomes. They later became elves. Live and they're telling right. him all of the stories. And so about the, the Ainur and the Valar and coming, coming to Middle Earth and the Children of Iluvatar and like all, all of this stuff. And it's in, in large part resembles what comes to known, be known eventually as the Silmarillion. Although a lot of it is underdeveloped and really different. But yeah, so that's and then eventually that framework in the published version of the Silmarillion is completely done away with. The frame story goes um is, is thrown completely by the wayside and it's just kind of the the bible so to speak
1: yeah that's really really interesting that adds an interesting wrinkle to it the fact that like it seems to definitively state that like yeah no this is in our our, our earth yeah. this exists on the same earth as us
0: and christopher tolkien notes in the book of lost tales which if you're interested in, in reading this frame story part the book of lost tales one and two is where it's contained um, yeah, which is the first two volumes of the Histories of Middle Earth series, and I think you've covered a few of the volumes on this podcast. Just a already. few, just
1: yeah. a few. Yeah,
0: it's it. Christopher Tolkien notes in there that this is mostly in the form, and I can only imagine how hellish this was to decipher of pen that is written over pencil that is then erased oh underneath.
1: Oh my God! Yes, you did that. That happened. So many times, yeah. in Return of the Shadow and the Treason of Isengard, he he talked about that. That was another thing he complained about, which I made fun of, but you know he was probably justified.
0: Yeah, you know I I, I get it because I think I actually turned in an essay that way once back before like computers were
1: really oh, wow. Thing.
0: And my and my teacher also was like, you can't do this shit. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I <that>. you
1: can't <laughs> read this. <laughs> I about the idea that you're in, like, you're in like fifth grade and your teacher's like, you gotta stop this shit! Yeah.
0: <laughs> and I think it was, be- they were forcing us to write in cursive, too, so I can only imagine what kind of hell my teacher went through <gasps> trying to read my 11-year-old, maybe 11 or 12-year-old cursive. So, but... okay, so I think we've jumped around a little bit, but essentially, like, one of the things I found most interesting in the Lord of the Rings section was I had never, so he drew the original covers for the Lord of the Rings and they have the drafts there and I have those versions in paperback with those drawings on them.
1: I remember. I wonder if they were re-released or something around the time Lord of the Rings came out because I remember that's when I remember seeing them yeah
0: and the because of the different form that the original painting is in or whatever they point out like this arm in the return of the king cover that's reaching across the top back and I had never noticed it even though I own the book and i read it a
1: couple times interesting and, you never know like you just never saw it or you didn't it, it didn't track as an arm yeah or I just, just saw it, think
0: I saw like shapes in the background and there and it's above the mountains but it's definitely like Sauron's you know finger like reaching across these yeah. And I hadn't really seen that before, so I really liked a lot of his artwork. I thought it was very whimsical.
1: I thought it was great, but then there was that letter for him that said, like, you know, yes, unfortunately, all the drawings are mine, and except for the cover of The Hobbit, they are all bad. Yeah. Just, like, straight up, like, my drawings suck. Sorry. They don't. They don't. I mean, like, obviously, he had no formal training, but he was you know, for a self-taught artist, pretty spectacular. Yeah, so. yeah,
0: he was. Um...
1: So then at the end, it moved into the Silmarillion right. section. And so much of what I... I just have, like, some odds and ends in here, to be honest. I liked... They talked about the poem. Um, so it's a poem called Christ. It's actually a set of three old English poems that come from the 900s. Yeah. And in that poem, they have the lines... Hail Arendelle, brightest of angels above the Middle Earth sent unto men. Yes. Uh, And Tolkien apparently read that poem in 1910, and I think, I don't even think I need to say, like, how that got worked into his subsequent literature.
0: Yeah, that's been, like, it's interesting that Arendelle's really, like, first character in the entire Tolkien legendarium, and it comes from
1: these poems. He pretty much just liked the name. I did. And also the poem has the phrase Middle Earth in it, which is interesting too. Yeah, and
0: it's like Mid- Midgard or something like that, if I recall yes. correctly, yeah. I do appreciate that the exhibit, roughly, in terms of his works, there was quite a bit on his life, but then the sections for The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and The Silmarillion were roughly the same size. Which I think is appropriate, and I, you know, because Tolkien certainly thought that his, the Silmarillion was really the important work. Like, to him, he spent his 50 years or something writing it. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. And to him, it
0: was by far the most important part, and really the actual story. And The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit were were the commercial successes, but I do appreciate that they, they lent equal weight to them right. in the exhibit because I think that's what Tolkien would have wanted.
1: Definitely. Even though, like, there's a lot of people out there who read The Hobbit and The, the uh, Lord of the Rings and will never read The Silmarillion. Yeah. Um, it's sort of... It get, it definitely gets a rap for being extremely dense and difficult to read, which I'm not saying it, it isn't. I definitely have to read it with like a map next to me yes. because it talks about geography at some length. But I think that if you are truly interested in, in, in Tolkien's world and if you appreciate how fleshed out it is, I think you owe it to yourself to give it a try. Even if you end up skimming bits and pieces, like I feel like overall you'll have an even greater appreciation of just how far he went to make it feel like a real physical place with tangible history tangible religion tangible customs languages it's pretty fascinating for that reason if for no other reason so
0: absolutely and I think if the Silmarillion is intimidating the fact that the fall of Gondolin is published separately as a more digestible self-contained story oh yeah because like the there's the three there's the Baron and Luthien maybe I'm mixing it up and Turin the children of
1: the children of Hurin yeah
0: that's the one so I'm mixing them up so the Children of Huron is the one that is published more like a novella. I would say, like it's one yeah. story. The other, the other two are, I would say, it's like Baron and Luthien, like the evolution of the story, you know, from Tevildo, Prince of Cats to Prince like, of Cats. Uh, it's
1: my favorite lost yeah. character.
0: And um, and similar with Tour and. Coming to Gondolin, but then the Children of Húrin is, is pretty digestible. So if the Silmarillion is intimidating, which it, believe me, like it's it can be pretty dense, then that, that is like a good place to start because it's. It's very Shakespearean, it's got a very, like, like defined arc. It's a pretty good self-contained story, and it's pretty dramatic, and it would get you interested in, like, the rest of the stories that Right,
1: Tolkien I is. agree. So, I agree. That's, like, a, the logical start point, I think, for me as well. So, you know, if nothing else, give that a try. Yeah, absolutely. Did you have anything else about the Silmarillion?
0: The Silmarillion, no, although I am seeing in my notes here that one of my favorite parts of the Lord of the Rings exhibit was Aragorn's letter to Sam.
1: <gasps> That's from that lost epilogue. Yeah. Like they literally talk about that in the lost epilogue. I was so excited that he actually wrote it out and he actually did write it in Tangwar. So so it was in in both English and I think Sindarin, but he wrote it in, like, Tangwar for both, so it was, like, English written in Tangwar, from what I remember, yeah. which is, like... But, you know, I was so happy that he included that, because that epilogue, while unnecessary, is extremely sweet. It is. And I, I like the fact that he went to all the trouble. I do, too. I, mean, of I really to wish
0: that trouble, had but... made it into some of the final published forms, because I think it's... um, I think that was one of my favorite parts of, like, for the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, and the Silmarillion exhibit, seeing that. I don't know, like, I got a little... I got a little emotional. I was like, "Oh my god! Like this is like a real letter that Aragorn, who's my personal favorite character, wrote to Sam, who's like right. my other favorite character. It's like, like it's Aragorn so
1: real. really wrote this. Yeah. It's like he really wrote this and sent it to the real Sam. Yeah. I know. I was really excited. That was like probably one of the most exciting parts about the Silmarillion section for me too. Yeah.
0: So that's uh, that's all I have in my notes in terms of. I like- have
1: one other thing because as you walked out, you saw Tolkien's like graduate. It's not his graduation gown. It's when he got his. Doctorate of Literature in 1972. They have that there and they have a picture. So he got it the year before he passed away. Um, And the reason why he got it so late, so it's interesting to think about the fact that he was this professor and quite a, prestigious post as well but he did not have a doctorate and the reason is that prior to the 1940s they did not offer doctorates at Oxford or Cambridge so he got one in 1972 and the note in the exhibit specifically said he liked it better than his medal from Queen Elizabeth (laughs) II so suck it Queen Elizabeth (laughs) don't give a crap about your medal
0: she's probably still feeling that burn to be honest
1: She probably is. She probably is. That's probably why she looks like she sucked a lemon in, like, so many pictures. She's still thinking about that. She's like, didn't like my medal. Yeah, so he got his Doctorate of Literature, and that's kind of where things ended, and that was also around the area where that guy was talking about Watership Down, so uh, that brings things full circle.
0: And, uh, yeah, the only, so the only other thing I recall was, I've never read the Letters of Father Christmas as, oh, as, they're a, good. as a book. They're cute. Um, but I I really I really liked that part of the exhibit because it talks a lot about how Tol I like, I just love the idea of Tolkien as like this father who was like super sweet to his kids and like it seemed like he was a pretty active member of the family which
1: he was super yeah yeah. he's super invested in like his children and their lives and like that is extremely
0: and their imaginations like it seems like he was pretty willing to indulge like childhood imagination and in fact that he even enjoyed it quite a bit which i feel like is really sweet and it's really nice and i think in a world where people tell kids to grow up and, and be realistic and blah 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 like it's nice to think of someone indulging in you know just like childhood silliness because I think
1: it's really yeah important it's kind of a rare thing there was that the as an example there was a picture of an owl that he drew because his son was having these recurring nightmares fantasies I can't quite remember that there was this this really grumpy looking owl like in his room staring down at him and so Tolkien drew a picture of a grumpy owl To comfort his son. And apparently, like, seeing it on paper like that, this, like, cute, grumpy little owl, like, his son couldn't be scared anymore. And in the note, he was talking about how um, Tolkien had a, a habit of doing that, of, like, taking your fears very seriously. Um, and not belittling them and I thought that was really sweet and also the owl picture is really cute
2: it is really cute Tolkien's Middle Earth speaks to so many of us because it is a complete world it has geography, it has history, it has languages we are not reading isolated tales but glimpses of a much richer and interwoven narrative these rarely seen items in the exhibition reveal how for Tolkien the production of textual and visual material went hand in hand in the creation of Middle Earth
0: If I made any factual mistakes, then I apologize. I did not research. (laughs) That's fine.
1: Like, I I do minimal preparation myself, if any at all. So it's totally fine. Yeah, we're Um, We're
0: just out here uh, living our lives. Best lives.
1: We are living our best lives. Speaking of which, you need to go have brunch.
0: I do. I'm going to go have brunch, and then I'm going to walk around in the sun. And it's going to be nice.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. And have fun at brunch.